Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora everyone, welcome to Wikipedia. this is Mickey, and I am speaking to Dr. Darren Kando this week, who's one of the world's foremost experts in creatine. Anyone who follows me will know I am quite enamoured with creatine and absolutely am blown away by the research that is emerging on the health benefits of what was once thought to be just a sports performance supplement. I speak to Darren about the role of creatine in health and performance, what the research shows with regards to creatine as an ergogenic aid, and the emerging research that illustrates its role in brain and bone health. And Darren also spends time sort of discussing the misinformation that exists out there with creatine and sets the story straight. So it was super to be able to get the opinion of someone who is in the field researching it and understands the literature behind the supplement so um, yeah, it was really great to be able to speak to Darren about that. Now for those of you who are unfamiliar with Darren he is a full professor and associate dean of graduate studies and research in the faculty of kinesiology and health studies University of Regina in Canada. Dr. Kando supervises the Aging Muscle and Bone Health Laboratory and serves on the editorial review board for the Journal of Aging and Physical Activity, the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition and Biogerontology. So Dr. Kando has received substantial research funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, Canada Foundation for Innovation, and other related um, health research foundations, all in the area of creatine. And he has published over 100 journal and knowledge dissemination articles involving exercise and nutrition. We will put links over to Darren in the show notes. But before we get to the show, a big shout out to all of you who have subscribed to the podcast and left a review. Thank you so much. That is the best way that you can support Wikipedia and raise the awareness of the podcast to everyone out there who listens to podcasts. And if you haven't already done that, we would be so grateful. So thank you for that. And also you can sign up to any number of my plans on my website if you're looking just for recipes and to be inspired on a week-by-week basis sign up to my recipe access on my portal 12 bucks a month can't really beat that Uh, and you also get access to my brain to shoot me any questions nutrition and health related my weekly emails a written Q&A forum and Facebook lives things like that Uh, or any other number of my plans like my fat loss plan for men and women and also my real food nutrition plans and also on my website and over on Instagram you can sign up to the waitlist for Monday's Matter so we are in our final week this week and the next round is kicking off late April and I've just been garnering feedback throughout the entire process actually and you know some real great take homes for so many people so if you're looking for an evidence-backed approach to fat loss in a really awesome community Monday's Matter would be so perfect for you. However 
right now if you've got a pen and paper handy I would sit back take some notes or commit to memory the information that is shared by Dr. Darren Kando all about creatine health and performance. That is awesome. Darren, Darren Kando, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to speak to me about one of my favorite topics, uh, which is strange. I never would have thought this would have been my favorite top, one of my favorite topics, but there you have it. Um, all about creatine. So can we just kick off by getting you to give me a little bit of your background? Uh, obviously, I will do a you know a good introduction of you in the lead up, but mm-hmm. give us a sense of sort of how you're looked on as, as one of the experts, I suppose, in this area. Yeah, it's it's a funny story. I remember finishing my undergrad degree at Acadia University in Nova Scotia here in Canada uh, and then deciding what to do next. And, and I decided to, to apply to grad school. And I was fortunate to work with Dr. Phil Chilibeck, who's one of the world's leading uh, clinical researchers, uh, specifically in creatine. And, and I just had a really good experience. We started to dabble into some amino acid work and protein. And then creatine was kind of getting uh, a lot of momentum from Roger Harris's work in the early 1990s. And uh, with exercising myself, I started to, to do a little bit more reading and found out, about, hey, this is kind of a, a beneficial thing for exercise performance. And that's, of course, where it's got to start. And for the last, I guess, 20 years, I've been really heavily involved uh, with creatine research and um, very fortunate to publish a high number of papers to get uh, research funding to look at uh, different populations. And we started with young individuals, healthy athletes. We still do some of that work, but we've now focused a lot of our work onto uh, aging population, looking at postmenopausal uh, uh, females, uh, older individuals with sarcopenia, and so it's it's really taken off from an athletic supplement to probably a supplement everybody uh, can consider for whatever uh, 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 health aspect they're they're looking for. So it's very exciting. Um, I love. Uh, researching it and um, very fortunate to work with a lot of scientists in that area. It's so interesting. So <laughs> I remember creating when I was studying my phys ed degree down at Otago and we had a bunch of like rugby players and whatnot in our um, in our cohort and they were the ones that were dosing the 20 grams of creatine, making sure they were having it with a glass of juice and, and it was certainly in that sort of sp- athletic space. But as of course you're you're saying, this is why it's so interesting. Is it's really sort of transitioned into this something that everyone should could consider taking. Yet I think a lot of people like me have these sort of misconceptions about previously I did as to who it was actually applicable for. Um, Darren, can we sort of take a step back and do a little bit of a one oh one oh one on what is creatine? Uh, where do we find it? Uh, how much do we need? All that sort of stuff. Sure. So creatine is actually naturally produced in our body. Uh, if Even if you're a plant-based uh, diet individual with emphasis or vegan vegetarian, you're naturally producing it in reactions in the, in the liver and kidneys. And simply creatine will leave the liver and enter your blood. And simply, primarily, it will go to your skeletal muscle. And about 95% of all our creatine is stored in our muscle. So the whole theory with what they call creatine supplementation is if you have more creatine in the muscle, the creatine is highly used to maintain our, our energy status of the cell called adenosine triphosphate or ATP. And therefore, if the muscle has more energy, you can probably exercise longer and at higher intensity. 
So back when uh, research st first started to look at creatine, athletes were getting bigger, stronger, faster when they added this to their training program. Mm -hmm. And so really, I guess one way to look at it is sort of enhances the energy currency of a cell, mm -hmm. allowing the cell to be probably in a better environment to produce work. And lo and behold, with the whole uh, caveat or cascade of research to follow, there's now a lot of cellular evidence that it, it leads to a lot of other potential benefits or effects within the body, uh, which we can get into from an anti-inflammatory response to an increase in muscle mass, potential for bone mineral density. And the big push now is on indices of brain health. Um, mm. So it's a whole multifactorial approach. Um, from the diet, though, for those individuals consuming red meat and, and seafood, uh, if you consume one serving a day, that probably gives you about two to three grams of creatine. So if you add that to the amount you're naturally producing in those reactions in the liver and kidney, about two grams, that equates to about five grams. Okay. Uh, vegan and vegetarians uh, do not consume creatine through habitual dietary sources. So they seem to benefit the most from supplementation. Um, and supplementation is extremely inexpensive. Uh, it's vegan and plant-based. So a lot of people will say, you know what, uh, I'm on a plant-based diet or vegetarian. I don't eat animal-based products for whatever reason, which is, is uh, great. Uh, I'll choose a supplement and uh, it's just easy to do it that way. So I think most people think creating supplement in a powder form, but you can get it through your diet. It is difficult to get the amount needed to show to be beneficial. So I think that's why people rely on the supplement. Mm. And is there any gender difference <clears throat> as to how much we may produce in mm -hmm. the body? The average person, depending on their diet, will produce about one to two, maybe even three grams of creatine a day. Uh, for those on a, a high meat diet, such as a carnivore diet, you're probably consuming anywhere between three to five grams a day. Uh, but that amount has been shown to saturate the muscle in as little as 28 days. Yeah. So combined with natural production, diet, and or supplementation. It doesn't take a lot to saturate the muscle. And once the muscle's full of creatine, you only degrade about two grams a day in the urine. So really a small daily dose, potentially three grams a day is all you would need once the muscle is saturated. Um, but I will point out, that's just from a muscle perspective. We don't know what the optimal dose is for brain or bone development. And any difference between males and females, or is it sort of based on muscle size and, and, and stuff like that? So that's an excellent question. So there's a theory that the more muscle mass you have, you may require a larger dose per day. Um, and this goes back to a lot of the cellular uh, mechanisms that potentially the more muscle a person has, they have more doorways or transporters to the muscle to allow creatine in. So yeah. if you're 250 pounds of muscle, you may require more creatine to, to maintain the muscle source compared to a hundred pound individual. Um, but both males and females respond very favorably to creatine supplementation from a muscle uh, bone growth analysis and, and performance. The only thing we're seeing is that females do not respond to creatine the same way as males when it comes to an anti-catabolic effect or muscle protein breakdown. So the theory is that if you decrease protein breakdown, you can recover the muscle faster, and that could allow an individual to train multiple times a day or more frequently. For some reason, males actually see a decrease in protein breakdown with creatine. Females, on average, typically don't. And we're not sure the reason, but there is some speculation that estrogen or the lack of estrogen as we approach menopause could be a contributing factor, but much more research needs to be done on that. What probably is more happening is that where females tend to have smaller muscles per se, 
They have higher amounts of initial creatine in the muscle. So therefore, they probably don't respond as well to supplementation. And, and that's probably more likely the reason that some females may not respond as well, because they may have higher initial amounts of creatine in the muscle, because on average, they're a bit smaller. So the concentration will be higher. So it means that their muscle cells are more saturated. So there's less sort of, there's more of a ceiling as to what additional creatine might. Yeah, that's 100% correct. Yeah. However, that is, and and then when you're talking like that, Darren, is it in and around that muscle, the benefits of creating from a muscle perspective and not, and as you say, or as you said earlier, we're unsure of sort of dosing for brain. So does that same sort of thing apply in, with regards to brain health or actually we just can't even say that right now? Yeah, we're submitting a huge review in about an hour uh, mm. after this podcast on the potential of creatine for brain health. And it was really cool and timely because I went back into the literature and we looked at neurodegenerative disease and things like that. So the brain is super cool. Unlike muscle, which does not synthesize creatine. So that's why it can take up a lot. The yeah. brain likes to synthesize its own creatine for brain homeostasis. And also astrocytes, which are one of our most important brain cells, they are uh, they lack the transport or doorway. So the brain synthesizes creatine and it's very resistant to supplementation. Hmm. So the theory now is that from a brain or cognition or concussion perspective, we may, we may probably need higher doses per day and for longer periods of time to get significant amounts to accumulate in the brain. There is some evidence, however, small doses, if you do it for a longer period of time, are effective. But the theory is that maybe the brain is resistant mm. and therefore you might need higher dosages to get enough into the brain and or longer uh, periods of time. And what <clears throat> is the benefit of that? Oh, so we're actually now seeing that creatine and some precursors can increase brain creatine content. All our cells use creatine, very similar in muscle in the brain cells for energy. And it's actually serving as a neuroprotective agent. Mm. So we're actually seeing some huge benefits from creatine supplementation in concussion or mild traumatic brain injury, uh, sleep deprivation, uh, a memory, mental health, some preliminary evidence that can have some benefit in neurodegenerative diseases. Um, but when it comes to memory and cognition and things like that, we're seeing some promise. The downfall is that a lot more research needs to be done from a mechanistic standpoint and look at uh, clinical trials. But I think this is the new area of emergence uh, where creatine will be going to more a therapeutic or brain health uh, perspective. Everything else used to be from the neck down. It's interesting now it could be from the neck up. And when you look at the totality of evidence, it looks like creatine may have application for the entire body. So that's wow. something that's very interesting now. Yeah. And anything in and around dosages, and I know obviously it's a very new area, but does the literature sort of support any particular amounts? You mentioned obviously that we may need more. Right. And so from a muscle perspective, most people are familiar with the creatine loading phase. That's where mm. they'll take 20 grams a day for about five or seven days. So this is really important. That's a very effective way to saturate the muscle. The downfall with the rapid loading phase, you're taking in about eight to 10 times as much as we naturally produce. Mm. And creatine is osmotic. It likes to take water from the bloodstream into around the muscle. So a lot of people say they've increased body weight. They feel bloating, some GI tract irritation. That is typically common during the loading phase. 
you do not necessarily need that loading phase. You could actually consume three grams a day every day and about a month, your muscles will be saturated to the same degree, hardly any water retention or side effects. We like to base it on body size, equating the size of the individual. So in all our labs, we do 0.1 gram per kilogram. So if you're 70 kilograms, mm-hmm. you're taking seven grams a day. If you're hundred kilograms, you're taking 10. Um, that seems to be very effective with no side effects as well. And and lo and behold, the most general recommendation is simply five grams a day. That seems to be very effective. A huge important factor is there's no adverse effects compared to placebo with any dosage of creatine. The only one could be the acute uh, uh, water effect. And when it comes to brain, we just think you may need more over time. Um, And and so those are the things that we're trying to uh, research. And uh, once COVID goes away, we'll get back in full force with more clinical studies with that as well. Awesome. And I have heard um, a number of just snippets here and there about uh, how creatine can be helpful with things like sleep deprivation and also uh, mood or depression. I don't know if I, if I, I've got that right. Yeah. Um, can you talk us through what is happening in that sleep deprivation story? Yeah. So all of those are great. And in this new paper, uh, depression seems to be the most promising, which is enormously uh, huge. And we're going to formulate this into potentially creatine uh, post-COVID. How can we help out? Uh, it doesn't seem to have that much effect right now for anxiety, mm. but some good evidence is suggesting it could decrease symptoms of depression, PTSD, and yep. sleep deprivation. And the totality of the evidence seems to be on the neuroprotective effect of creatine, either from an anti-inflammatory or anti-catabolic perspective. So it seems to have some cellular effects, either improving neuronal health or other types of indices of brain health. Uh, but again, more mechanisms need to be done, but it is promising, but not to get everybody too excited. It's still in its infancy, but it can't hurt. That's one yes. thing we're seeing. Taking creatine is never increase the rate of depression or anxiety of anything, it might have some beneficial effects. Okay. And then if someone is for, so if I'm thinking about sleep deprivation and there might be this acute effect of taking Mm -hmm. creatine, is there a timing there? So let's say I get a rubbish night's sleep. Is it beneficial for me to take creatine in the morning? Yeah. So this is a a really uh, an important point. The timing of creatine is irrelevant per se. So I'm going to stress that it's irrelevant per se. And in other words, that if you don't take creatine within a certain window, it will still work. So unlike caffeine, it accumulates in in the cells. Um, So we now think creatine can be taken any time of the day, but during times of heightened metabolic stress. So exercise is one. If creatine can be consumed around exercise or times of metabolic stress, such as sleep deprivation, uh, students stayed up all night. Taking creatine around heightened times of metabolic stress, in theory, could be advantageous. So there is some evidence that if you take creatine in close proximity to exercise, that is more beneficial than potentially spreading it out like morning and evening. But it does accumulate, um, and it's not a stimulant immediately like caffeine within an hour. So the cool thing is you can take it anytime throughout the day. Uh, as a caveat, though, my recommendation is not to consume it directly with caffeine. Mm. Um, there can be a potential of an interference effect, especially for those who are engaged in a weight training program. Um, so an easy recommendation is pre-exercise caffeine, consume your coffee, maybe an hour before. And then an easy strategy is consume your creatine with food or water after exercise or with supper, whichever it is. There you go. 
Now, pre-workouts are a bit different because mm. most have both, but they also have a lot of other compounds. Okay. So okay. there, we've done a study last year and it, it, it did show, although it was a small sample size, that when you take caffeine and creatine powder together, they did blunt the effects compared to creatine alone. So there is mm. some evidence that combining the two might not, and I stress might not be the best idea, just in case there is an interference, maybe just spread it out. Uh, there's no benefit to taking caffeine post-exercise. Uh, it's all benefit before and vice versa. So again, um, whichever is easier to achieve compliance to the person. Okay, awesome. Darren, if you were to take creatine after a night of sleep deprivation, how much would you be taking? So I, I personally think we can take more. I've never seen any evidence to suggest that three or five grams is the limit. Um, and very similar to anabolic resistance with protein, I think more could potentially be better. So I take anywhere between about eight to 10 grams on mm. a daily basis. Um, and there's no need to cycle it. You can take that every day. Um, I've decreased uh, red meat consumption substantially. Um, so I'm, I'm more into uh, seafood and, and mm. poultry. Um, but the emphasis on a plant-based diet, I've increased my creatine to offset that as well. I will point out, there's been never a study yet that has shown uh, a dosage of creatine less than eight grams a day has been beneficial for bone health. So for mm. females, especially that low dose doesn't seem to be working as much. We don't know if a higher dose needs to accumulate in the bone cells. And all our clinical data is showing at least eight grams a day in combination with weight training is required to show some bone beneficial effects. So when you look at the maybe heightened dose for brain, bone, and maybe even muscle, uh, I personally take about eight to 10 grams a day or 0.1 grams per kilogram, which is about nine kilogram or uh, nine grams for me or more. So it's easy to take. I mix it with uh, uh, yogurt or a protein shake, whichever it is. Uh, for me, I just don't consume it with coffee. Okay, awesome. And before we get on to the bone health implications, which I'm super interested in, what is actually going on in the brain in that sleep deprivation yeah. story. So how is it working the way that caffeine does, but without that stimulating effect? Yeah. So the energy currency of the cell during sleep deprivation is highly used to maintain other processes. So when you hear of cognitive or brain fatigue, uh, some people say they've been up all night, they can't remember where they left their keys. There's a lot of things going on. Uh, it seems that creatine acts as energy or fuel for mm. a vehicle uh, for all our brain cells to allow it to recover. And then it also decreases inflammatory responses. These things called cytokines or other uh, proteins that are heightened during times of metabolic stress. And mm. it seems to enhance recovery. So it may not offset the detrimental effects of, of sleep deprivation during you being up all night or whichever, but it can help recover and, and allow a faster rate of recovery compared to a placebo. Nice. And, and you mentioned that it reduced inflammation. Is that, that says to me sort of why it might be studied in terms of um, concussion, which is yes. what you were talking about before. Yeah, it's showing promise uh, post-marathon, post-triathlon to really decrease ah. measures of inflammation. Uh, it's now showing to be anti-cancerous. Uh, please, for the viewers, when you read these mice articles at super physiological doses, of creating increasing tumor growth, the vast majority of clinical evidence in humans su uh, suggests an anti-cancerous or anti-tumor growth perspective. Uh, so it's an anti-inflammatory agent. Um, again, since we naturally produce it, it really seems to like recovering the body 
uh, at the mitochondria, makes the mitochondria healthier and functional. Um, so from an anti-aging perspective, it could be something to be considered uh, uh, from a lifelong perspective. And there's mm. new research even from Australia uh, and the United States showing pregnancy. When females are pregnant, it really enhances the energy status of embryonic development, the fetus, and, and for the, the mother. So to me, there's not a person on the planet, born or unborn, uh, that may not benefit from this naturally occurring product in, in the human body. That's so interesting, isn't it, how it's it seems to work on so many levels. Like if we think evolutionarily, have, mm-hmm. our, have our intakes changed over time or have our requirements increased over time I don't know like like yeah. if you think you know 40 50 100 years ago we didn't have these supplements available yet you know there were uh, populations which were completely healthy so have you thought like is there anything to be yeah. said in that sort of realm yeah we in 2015 at a creatine conference in Laughlin Germany it was a lot of guys just sitting around and when you look back way back when and the primarily uh, source of food was animal-based products. These individuals were lean and strong. Um, yeah, the protein. I mean, creatine was first extracted from meat in the late 1800s. And so mm. even the biochemists way back when were familiar with some ext- extracts from basic biochemistry. But it could have been one of the factors for the initial Olympic Games. The more meat consumption uh, could have been allowing these individuals to get bigger, stronger, faster, or have higher recovery. So yeah, it goes back centuries, um, no mm. different than protein. So it is an interesting way that a historian could go back and look at the transition. Um, Linford Christie kind of gave it a lot of the press in 1992 by winning the Olympic gold medal. And then all of a sudden it exploded. And yeah. everybody seemed to be taking this white powder. Uh, and of course, it was designed for athletes. But now I would consider it uh, more of a medical or, or health um, uh, compound that is not essentially required, but it sure does have promise for a lot of areas to consider. Yeah. And you've like, we've talked about the, in the gym sort of setting, I mentioned the rugby players, which um, I noticed taking it and saw real benefit. And you've just mentioned a potential benefit from an endurance aspect that Mm -hmm. reducing inflammation post-training. Any other endurance-based benefits, Darren, that the literature sort of shows us? Yeah, and this is only until recently. So it used to be just weightlifting or powerlifting, but now it's having a lot of application for uh, endurance or sporting type of events. So two types, anything that's anaerobically based where there's intermittent bursts of high intensity exercise. Um, So this could be basketball, soccer, swimming, anything uh, very intense. Um, So sporting events are very beneficial. Anything that's based on body weight or long duration, low intensity may not get the perceived performance benefits. But to uh, counter argue that uh, some good studies in post marathon where creatine has been taken, when they take creatine before they run the marathon, the rate of inflammatory responses and proteins is substantially reduced right after Mm -hmm. the marathon compared to placebo. So if I ever was crazy enough, I can't run. If I had to do a marathon, I would probably follow that protocol and maybe take way more creatine beforehand. And that might alleviate some of my muscle soreness that I would probably experience after. Okay. So I just did a 60K run, a a race, um, which was awesome and uh and suffered of course with doms the couple of days afterwards a little bit longer than a couple i have a potential event coming up as long as it's not cancelled so what would my protocol be with so if if right now which i do i take three grams of creatine daily typically after exercise what would that research sort of suggest i should do instead so with you where you've been taking it probably for a while your muscles are probably going to 
pretty saturated. I okay. think for about the 10 days before, you may want to increase that dosage in hope that it's going to decrease DOMS or, or, uh, uh, or inflammation after. The only oh. caveat for you is don't increase the dose so much that you do retain a bit more water where now you're larger and that could potentially increase energy expenditure during the race. So you may want to titrate it in. Maybe today you start taking five yeah. and work your way up. And, and then it could, in the studies that have been published, they did the loading phase, 20 grams a day. Mm. So again, I think they just wanted to super physiologically compensate the muscle. But if you've been taking it, there's probably a reason that you're already having heightened um, uh, recovery from inflammation already. But, but by taking a bit more is only going to benefit you. Okay, that's awesome. And what you just mentioned there with that potential for uh, water retention is one of the reasons I see a lot of endurance mm -hmm. athletes sort of shy away from it. But as I understand it, not, is it everyone that gets that water retention, Darren, or is it, so is it across the board or is it more to do with that sort of loading and the really high amounts of creatine that people can so take? So overall, when you look at all the evidence, creatine technically, and there's a few studies that refute this, but do not, it does not lead to total body water retention. Mm. If it does, it's within the muscles. Some people say their muscles feel bigger and stronger. Yeah. And during that loading phase, you may feel more bloating, things like that, but your, your body does adapt. I argue that if you do retain more water in the muscle, it's hydrating the muscle, and then you're going to have less chance of cramping and dehydration. Mm. A lot of people say, no, I don't want all that. I'm going to get cramping. I'm like, no, it's a hyper hydrating substance through the muscle, not dehydrating. So for uh, exercise in the heat, I strongly encourage creatine on a recommended dosage because that's going to trap water in the muscle and not lead to dehydration. Whereas yeah. other people think it's the opposite. Yep. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent for you to sort of clarify that because that was my, that's sort of where I went with that too. In my head, yet have seen people say the opposite. I'm like, oh, it doesn't make sense to me. If you're yeah. holding more water, it's going to be better from a hydration. Yeah. And, and for a bodybuilder, this comes up all the time. Should I take creatine while I'm cutting to go on stage? I'm like, of course, it doesn't lead to extracellular water. You want your muscles to be full and longer. And if the muscle is swollen, that increases all the magic satellite cells and growth factors and protein synthesis gets turned on. So this is an important distinction. Creatine has never been shown ever to directly increase the rates of protein synthesis like protein uh, supplementation can, mm. but it sure turns on about nine other, other things that are involved in that process. And one of it is all based on swelling the cell and therefore the muscle will respond. So having more water in the muscle is really beneficial if you're trying to make the muscle stronger and potentially bigger. Okay. So, you know, I, I am quite familiar with the protein research and, and you mentioned anabolic resistance before. And as we mm -hmm. age, we do right. appear to require more of that sort of leucine amino acid and protein intake in general right. in one hit to sort of turn on that muscle protein synthesis. Um, is there a reason then to think that if you have sort of your cells are saturated with creatine and you have a regular dose of that, that protein, that you have less anabolic resistance? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, and I'm really interested in this. And I almost consider with aging, we get anabolic resistance to creatine as well for three reasons. Mm. We all know that type two muscle fiber, the biggest ones in the muscles are substantially reduced with aging. Secondly, most older individuals from survey data have uh, really, really low meat intake. Mm. Third is they're highly not engaged in intense activity. And the more intense activity, you recruit those larger muscles. So when you combine all three of those, and there is some evidence that 
fossil creatine metabolism could be jeopardized or altered with aging. My guess is older individuals, just like they need more protein per serving, may need more creatine. And in all our publications, if you go right to the last paragraph, when we see inconsistent results, even at about eight or nine grams a day, we always say maybe a larger dose is needed to produce consistent results. And that's the theory. And we're planning once COVID goes away, a, a, a creatine dosing strategy to really see if maybe 10 or 15 grams a day for an older adult is needed. And if it's safe to produce those consistent results, but to your point, we do know some studies that when you combine protein and creatine, you get a synergistic effect, mm -hmm. but I do think the aging process, if it's blunted with protein, it doesn't make any sense why it wouldn't be blunted with creatine as well from a muscle perspective. And that's something that we're going to look at. Yeah, interesting. And I think one of the really cool things with a creatine study is, as I understand it, it doesn't have to be a two-year study for this. Like, It actually feels like it's quite a feasible sort of uh, study to, um, to execute. That's correct. Yeah, you can see good results in about six weeks. Obviously, longer is better. Mm. Anything with bone should be about a year because it takes about eight months for bone to turn over from a significant perspective. But we've done studies in eight, 10, 12 weeks and seen some really good results compared to a placebo uh, just with creatine and, and resistance training. And, and so that's an important distinction. You can get some small beneficial effects with creatine on its own, some cognitive benefits or strength benefits, but the 99% of all the research suggests that resistance training or weight-bearing exercise or exercise in general is required to get or unlock the magic of creatine. Yeah, awesome. And I'm glad you brought it back to the bone because I find it super interesting, some of the research in and around that. Can you sort of just talk us through, Darren, why creatine is essential for bone and what's actually happening when we supplement or what are we seeing is going on there? It was actually discovered by my mentor kind of by mistake from a human perspective. So when you do a dual energy x-ray after autometry or a DEXA scan, it will actually give you not only muscle and fat, bone mineral density. And so we were always highly uh, looking at the effects on muscle mass, which most people were. But lo and behold, when you start to look at the data with bone mineral content and density, it seemed that there was a significant interaction that when individuals would consume creatine and perform resistance training, their bone mineral content and or density had a favorable uh, increase compared to placebo. And then you look at some cellular and, and uh, cultural data, and it seems like osteoblast cells, which are our bone building cells, they seem to become very energized in the presence of creatine. Hmm. So if these bone building cells use creatine for energy and or fuel, they can help stimulate and, and deposit more calcium and phosphate salts into bone matrix. Uh, so that could be the potential anabolic factor. But what's more uh, evident is that creatine has an anti-catabolic effect on bone. So it seems that creatine reduces bone breakdown. Um, if any of the viewers know what bisphosphonates are, they're a drug that decreases bone breakdown. Well, creatine is sort of acting the same way. It decreases osteoclast activity. Mm. And so if you have less bone breakdown and potentially more being uh, deposited, that could have some promise. There's probably been about 10 or 15 studies now on uh, bone mineral density, content, and strength. And, and we see some promise that creatine can uh, increase some measures of bone mineral, uh, increase bone strength, or reduce bone loss. Uh, but the majority of evidence suggests that it's in postmenopausal females, which has huge implications for osteoporosis. Uh, but again, it has to be combined with weight training. Mm -hmm. All the studies that looked at creatine with no exercise found zero effect. Mm. So bone is very rigid. It responds to mechanical uh, uh, stimuli. 
the theory is that if the muscle will grow, it'll add more tension to the bone. So therefore that could be one of the reasons, but from a cellular perspective, it seems that the bone uh, remodeling process uh, is favorably increased with creatine. So interesting. I um, had a chat to Stuart Gray, um, mm-hmm. a professor. Oh, I cannot recall what uh, where where he was based, but this was about a year ago on the important impact of omega threes on yes. on bone. And I just am so interested that mm-hmm. more and more research is coming out in the importance of other nutrients outside of, say, calcium for bone health. And of course, we're an aging population, and the more that we can sort of push this message that not only is nutrition uh, well. Obviously, nutrition is important. Uh, resistance training and exercise is important. And actually just staying healthy and functional as you age is important. And it's not just taking you know, supplements. It's that yeah. resistance training stuff yeah. as well. Yeah, supplements are always at the bottom. Like people mm-hmm. think, oh, I'm going to take a supplement versus that. No, no, no. Sleep, proper food. This goes primarily for children. Um, all the facets of overall health. And then supplements are like the sprinkling or icing on the cake. They make things taste a little bit better, maybe easier, but you can take all the supplements till you're blue in the face. And if you don't have a good lifestyle, it's not going to work. So uh, I always say, you know, don't expect a lot from supplements. They can definitely help. Uh, Make sure you're taking the ones that have been shown to be effective, Um, but you got to have good sleep, proper hydration, adequate diet. Uh, Mental health is another, but yeah, all these facets of overall longevity and yeah, supplements are not steroids. They don't magically work. Uh, you still have to do all the work and effort, uh, but they can just mm. definitely help uh, achieve your overall goals. And with the bone um, story, the first with the fact that it's uh, beneficial for postmenopausal women, mm-hmm. potentially due to the lack of estrogen, men, older men don't have much estrogen either, but are you seeing different um, effects in those different cohorts? Yeah, we, we don't see the same response in males. Now, in the studies that have looked at males, an important distinction here, they were all healthy. Okay. So maybe their bones were too healthy to get or need a response from creatine. In postmenopausal females, where the rate of bone loss is rapidly accelerating uh, with the cessation of estrogen, maybe they were more responsive to creatine. And that's probably one of the reasons. Now, if we took an osteoporotic population of just mm. males, that might be different or frail. Uh, mm-hmm. That might be something considered as well. But we did see an increase even in healthy uh, males over the age of 50 in increase in bone strength. So that uh, substantially reduces the, the chance of fracture. So both will respond. The main focus right now is in postmenopausal females. Um, they're at a higher heightened rate for fragility fractures, falls, as well as osteoporosis. So that's kind of where the focus is be. And to be honest, females are much better uh, participants than males. Uh, so from a nutrition and compliance standpoint, uh, that's probably one of the reasons we focus on that for sure. Yeah, nice. And I mentioned obviously Stu Gray before, and I, I believe some of the research he's involved in, or at least he quoted, was mm-hmm. actually in older adults that were bedridden. And, you yes. know, one of the, the worst sort of situations to be in is if you were have to be bedridden for like 10 days and that acceleration of bone and muscle mass. So if creatine has this beneficial response to um, osteoclasts, yes, like, I don't know if the research has been done, but would you hypothesize that it would be beneficial in that setting? 
Yeah. So that's, an, uh, you know, you think of uh, astronauts or uh, older adults, especially at bedridden. So we've done a study where we actually had healthy volunteers, younger place, uh, a volunteer to place plaster casts on their arm and creatine did attenuate or decrease the rate of muscle and uh, uh, strength loss. This was in younger individuals, but that's another line of uh, thinking with forced bed rest or immobilization or uh, inactivity, i.e. COVID, Mm. could creatine offset the rate of loss. And that's where we think it has a lot of potential. It seems to preserve your natural um, increase. And the other really fascinating thing with creatine is that the benefits that you get, typically those creatine levels will stay uh, increased for about four weeks. Hmm. And we published a, a paper in older men uh, way back in, in the early 2000s. And it showed that when they take 12 weeks of creatine and resistance training, all the benefits, the muscle mass and strength main, are maintained for 12 weeks after they stop taking creatine. Mm. So just by forcing activity or going to the hospital, the benefits you got from supplementation may last for weeks afterwards. So it just seems to have some beneficial effects over baseline. Yeah, so interesting. Darren, now I have heard a few um, negative or people push back with the use of creatine with with regards to a couple of different areas. Mm -hmm. And I just want to get your sort of insights um, on this. And I have heard you talk about one of them. So I'd love to have a chat about that. So I listened to a podcast of a very well-respected, he knows his stuff on all things sort of to do with the brain. And he said, I don't think we should be taking creatine as a supplement because it increases hair loss. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot of people going, oh my God, my hair has started thinning since I've taken creatine. Yeah. So I hope he, uh, well, uh, that's not true. Uh, so yeah. I'm the, if you could see me, I'm the worst person to say this. Obviously, <laughs> I was losing my hair and many of us, the well-known researchers were losing our hair before creatine. So I think what he meant was he was referring to the one study, the only study that everybody um, relies on. I'll give you an example. If I actually proved that creatine uh, cured cancer, they would read that. And the first question I would get is, hey, doesn't creatine cause baldness? So, I mean, it's the most popular <laughs> question I get. And, and that's part of the myths and misconceptions paper uh, we put out last year. So this all based on a study at Australia where they took a young population group of rugby players. Mm -hmm. So this is a really important distinction, and I'm glad you brought it up. They took they gave rugby players 25 grams of creatine a day for a week, the loading phase. Then they reduced it to a maintenance dose uh, for a subsequent three weeks. So it was only three weeks in duration. The design was very elegant. They did a crossover design. So that means each player got creatine and or placebo with a six-week washout. And lo and behold, when you look at the results, they measured a hormone called dihydroxytestosterone or DHT. So a little bit of 101 is testosterone in the body is converted to DHT. And DHT has been highly linked to follicle loss, shrinking, and death. Mm. So immediately they said, well, obviously DHT went up with creatine supplementation that would inevitably lead to hair loss and baldness. I can't stress this enough in this study, which is three weeks duration, not a single hair strand follicle or biology of it was measured. Mm. DHT was the only thing measured and as well as testosterone. So just because a hormone is increased does not necessarily mean anything to the overall goal. I'll give you an example. You can increase the rates of protein synthesis with one resistance training session. That does not mean anything to muscle mass. It mm. has to happen repeatedly over time. And Stu Phillips will actually corroborate that from McMaster University. But of course, everybody says that one rugby study, I can't take creatine. 
the dosage or the levels went up between 40 to 56% when the young um, uh, adults were on creatine compared to placebo, but they started much lower. It just so happened that when they started creatine, the dose or the amount of DHT was lower. And when they even increased the 56%, it was still within the normal physiological range. The other thing they won't tell you is that exercise training substantially increases DHT. Yeah. So again, since they had no creatine only group, you can't conclude they had a placebo, but the placebo was 50 grams of sugar, which mm. we now know was a nutrient. So as it stands right now, there's no direct evidence that creatine causes baldness, but also unfortunately, no studies ever been done. So we can't emphatically say it doesn't. Mm. All we can say right now is it increased a hormone that's been linked to hair loss. It's never been replicated. And until those studies uh, occur, we just have to conclude that creatine does not lead to hair loss at this moment. Mm. And because, of course, something can um, be increased transiently, but it doesn't mean that it's going to stay high. And and that's interesting with exercise increasing DHT, like it's that then obviously is involved in a pathway which helps with the adaptation of exercise and getting fitter and stronger and faster and things like and, that. And this, to, to continue with this study, no females, no age ranges, oh, yeah. no genetic predeposition. Where what was the maternal link from the male and and bald and pre? So so there were so many things they didn't even dis- disclose where the creatine came from, the purity of it, any other supplements they were taking. Uh, so again, uh, but everybody relies on this one study and rugby players. It's probably the most famous creatine study ever, which is a little surprising, <laughs> actually. So Darren, the other thing that I get, and this is from clients as well, is that they tell me, you know, we we talk them through supplements they should be taking. I mm-hmm. suggest creatine. They come back, you know, a month later, um, their creatinine is reading high in okay. their bloods. And they say their doctors told me to stop taking creatine because it's not healthy for my kidneys. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, I'm pretty sure that that is related to kidneys. It, that is. So this is probably the biggest myth uh, yes. right with the baldness. So a little bit of one-on-one here is when you have creatine in the muscle, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about two grams of that is broken down. And when it's broken down, it's turned into a product called creatinine. Mm. And anybody who's had any blood work done uh, on a blood requisition form, you probably see this box checked off. It says creatinine or, or it's an indirect uh, uh, measure of kidney function. So all it does is once it's, it leaves the muscle and goes in the bloodstream, it's a, a metabolite that our body doesn't use. It can't be reused. So we just excrete it in the urine. So the theory is that once creatine enters the blood, if it stays in the blood, that means the kidneys are not really working properly because they're not clearing it uh, in the urine. Um, so we just usually measure high creatinine clearance. If it's high, that means your kidneys are great, uh, so on and so forth. What the big misconception with creatinine is, if you're on creatine supplementation, if you have a high amount of red meat or you engage in intense physical activity, you're going to have elevated blood creatinine levels regardless. Mm. So the problem is for most general general practitioners, they may not be up to date on what creatine supplementation does. They're only based on the, the pathophysiology of the kidney, but usually it's overestimated or alarm bells go off. But for the average person, if you're on creatine, high red meat or exercising intensely, expect your creatinine levels to be higher. Okay, but do not need to worry about that. 
No, they do not. And and obviously the, the easiest way to know this is as soon as you decrease creatine in, in the diet or whichever, they go back to normal. So it wasn't your kidneys in the, in the first place. Um, yeah. But we see this time and time again. There is good evidence to suggest under recommended dosages, people even on dialysis or impaired kidney function benefit from creatine because creatine can be used as an essential nutrient in those uh, organs. And again, creatine endogenously produced uh, first starts in the kidneys. So yeah. I, again, it's, there's no reason to suggest impaired kidney function. And when we look at all the clinical data, we don't see any difference compared to the placebo. Okay. Um, now, obviously, kidneys one organ. Is there anything in relation to the heart and whether there's a benefit to taking creatine from sort of heart, yeah, heart-related health? Yeah, there is. From a cardiovascular perspective, stroke and or cardiovascular uh, kinetics, uh, creatine seems to have some beneficial effect by maintaining the elasticity of blood flow and mm. some having strength to the myocytes in around uh, the heart lining as well. So it could have application for cardiovascular or cardiac rehab programs. Uh, and or strengthening the human heart if it's healthy, it probably doesn't have that much impact. But from a recovery standpoint, where it's anti-inflammatory, it can have some beneficial effects as well. And there's been a couple papers uh, this year that have highlighted that uh, from a good standpoint. Oh, so interesting. So, Darren, is there any population that would not benefit or that there would be sort of contraindications from taking creatine? The one that we're cautious about is children and adolescents, and it's becoming very, very popular. Um, and in all the current evidence, and Andrew Ogham and Checkers from the United States seem to be the leaders when it looks at children and adolescents. Uh, and when you look at all the studies, there's no adverse effects from taking dietary creatine, and it can have some beneficial effects from a performance uh, uh, post-concussion syndrome. Um, and then there's a, a few case studies with young boys with muscular dystrophy where creatine has really enhanced their way of life. Although caution needs to be done when you're having looking at someone under the age of 18. But as it stands right now, we're not seeing any clinical evidence to suggest any reason not to consume creatine. And going back to Stacey Ellery's work and Haley Dickinson, who used to be in Australia and now she's in private practice, when you look at uh, fetal development and pregnancy, it seems to have some beneficial effects. So I'm mm -hmm. having a difficult time finding any human on the planet who may not get some benefit from creatine if it's done in a recommended and safe manner. Mm, okay. Well, that, that's awesome. We talked, obviously, that you can load with creatine to supersaturate the cells. Yes. That's not necessary, is it? That's not. So you can start really, really easy, three grams a day. That's about a half a teaspoon. That would be one serving of salmon or, or, or three quarters of a, a steak or red meat. So it's easy to do. You can take that every day um, and then it will saturate the muscles in about 28 days. Mm. If you're looking at it from more of a bone and brain perspective, you may need to increase the amount. Um, but if you're getting anywhere from a combination of diet, supplementation or food anywhere between five and 10 grams. That's plenty. Uh, it's not something you need to really worry about. It'll come easy. Uh, but again, most people do choose a supplement. It's so inexpensive. Mm. It's uh, pennies per serving. Um, they're plant-based, uh, they're third-party tested. Um, they're always uh, considered from reputable companies safe. They usually have the logo that they've been tested and certified safe. And um, it's just that easy. Yeah. Okay. So that's because that's the other thing I was going to ask you about is the purity because yes. you mentioned that earlier and, and if there's any particular brands we need to be aware of that or to stay away from or, but you actually just outlined what we need to look for. Yeah. So the first thing, if anybody's going to consider us, yeah. If anybody's going to consider a supplement, make sure somewhere on the logo, it's either certified safe 
by yeah. third party. There's many different organizations. Please do not buy any product that does not have a third party or certified safe logo. Yeah. Um, you don't know of any uh, contaminants or anything else that's derivative there. And I would emphasize maybe more reputable companies. I don't want to single out any there. Yeah. Uh, there's many around the world, but um, do a little bit of homework um, and maybe go to some research articles and see what type of creatine they use. Mm. Um, so in our lab, we use a product called CreaPure. It's 100% mm -hmm. certified, third-party tested, but other labs use different forms. As long as it's creatine monohydrate, and it's 100% pharmaceutical grade, you probably have nothing to worry about. Okay. Because there is, even though it isn't, it's not an expensive supplement, there is a variation in price when people go to look. And there is, I don't know what it is about us. It's like, oh, if it's more expensive, it's likely to be a better product. Is that not necessarily the case? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So this is the area that sort of gets my goat a little bit. So creatine monohydrate, time-tested, true, the best. People say boring, 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 because hmm. it's just been working and, and why mess with a good thing? It's cheap. It, there's not a lot of flashiness on the logo. So you've probably seen or heard about about 20 to 30 new forms of purported creatine that have been flooding the marketplace with flashy logos and all this. You have these creatine potential solutions and uh, creatine hydrochloric or HCL has come out in gangbusters in the last a uh, couple of weeks. So this is a really good summary. Nothing has ever been shown, not even close to the efficacy and consistency of creatine monohydrate from a performance or health benefit. Mm -hmm. Some forms of creatine may get in the blood quicker, but creatine monohydrate gets there almost hundred percent. It might be a bit slower, but nothing has ever been shown to get in the muscle and correlate to performance benefits the same as monohydrate. Mm. it's a form of creatine, you need to make sure there's creatine in it. And then it has to have all those benefits. Like creatine HCL can run 80 to $90 Canadian for a tub, whereas some creatine monohydrate, maybe 30. Nice. So please don't waste your money on alternate forms of what I say, purported forms of creatine. Stick with creatine monohydrate. It's the safest, most consistent, reputable form of creatine. It may not be flashy, uh, but it's it's reliable, it's validated, and I can't stress enough, just please stay with powdered form of monohydrate. Okay, now that's great. You've That's quite clear, which is quite good. Um, back in the day, in the 1900s, my rugby mates, they were taking it with orange juice and mm -hmm. a form of carbohydrate. So yeah. is there a benefit to that? Yeah, there is. Now, the, the caveat here is that insulin from the, the simple sugars will enhance creatine uptake into the muscle. Mm -hmm. But as I just said, uptake will be very, very high. Uh, we think muscle contraction is one of the best ways to do that. But if you take creatine and water or food, it will still get in the muscle at a rapid rate. And uh, But uh, insulin will allow an increase. The dose, though, has to be fairly high. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of people don't want simple sugars or even other types of carbohydrates to add that in. So I think you may not want to put a lot of stock into that for the overall uh, longevity perspective. But it does does increase its absorption into the muscle uh, and that's through the insulin uh, pathway. Uh, it's not required to be effective. Mm -hmm. So it's really up to the personal preference of the person, but nicely, like for you running a lot, you're going to want to have carbohydrates and creatine. You can combine the two and you'll get your synergistic effect. Some people like type two diabetics who can't have a lot of sugar, but benefit from creatine that could be totally different. So it might come down to the population or the individual uh, 
uh, preference. Yeah, no, that's awesome because it certainly sounds the way that you're talking about it, that the speed into the muscle is definitely something to consider potentially or a consideration for an athlete and their performance, whereas for the general population, which is 99% of us, in fact, that's not necessarily an issue. And I will put out there is evidence that whey protein or other types of protein can stimulate insulin almost similarly to simple sugars. So I'd much rather put creatine in protein because then you get the anabolic effects of protein with that as well. Oh, I like that. That's like a a good combo. It Um, is, it is. And Darren, another question that I saw that you uh, talked about in your paper of misconceptions, and of course I will put this in the show notes and then any other sort of quite relevant papers will also put them in the show notes, is the question of is creatine stable in beverages? Why would someone want to know about that? Yeah, as it currently stands now, creatine is not stable long-term in, in beverages. Uh, so there's a new push on creatine drinks, kind of, okay. or whatever it is. Please stay away from that and stay with your powder form. Uh, based on the properties of creatine, it breaks down to creatinine in a few hours, depending on mm. temperature, uh, in water uh, for a long period of time. Now, the half-life of creatine in, in water, if you were going to consume it, can be as up to about 40 days. So, I mean, putting creatine and mixing in, in solution is fine, but these commercially manufactured products that have a lot of other things in their artificial flavors, typically they don't or probably don't contain creatine or it's broken down to creatinine by the okay. time you consume it. Um, so in my opinion, unless I'm proven otherwise, go with the powder form, although it may not be that dissolvable uh, based on uh, its stability and solution, that does not affect its effectiveness. The key though, is it doesn't degrade the creatinine when you just take your powder and mix it in solution. And if you mix it in the morning and go to the gym at night, it's still gonna be creatine. I worry about these commercially manufactured products that for one, is it creatine? And mm. does it act like creatine? And those mm-hmm. are things to consider. Um, and I'm not sold on those yet. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And of course, anything sort of pre-made, you don't know what else is in it. And they're Correct. usually a lot more expensive. Yep. So again, I I know it's boring, but stay with the old creatine monohydrate powder. And if you're having a multi-compound supplement that's got a whole bunch of other things in there, please make sure it's creatine monohydrate that you're taking based on evidence-based research. Awesome. Um, Now, one last question, and it's sort of like, I I keep sort of uh, uh, flogging this a little bit, but if creatine is useful for sleep deprivation, is there any reason why we shouldn't take it at night? There has been some anecdotal reports at high dosages during the loading phase. Some people say they have uh, it's influenced their sleep. Mm. Um, that could be either an indication of urination or GI tract irritation, things like that. We don't see any reason at lower recommended dosages. So there's potential maybe during the loading phase, but a a lower dose that we talked about on a daily basis will have no detrimental effects. Okay. No, that's awesome. Um, Darren, anything that I've missed, any area that sort of where creatine is, um, is influencing that would be good just to sort of let people know about? Yeah, no, we've talked about a a lot. Uh, I think the area that's emerging is people with arthritis or any inflammatory condition or or, uh, clinical populations. I think as we move forward, people with uh, like uh, obesity, sarcopenic obesity, uh, caxia or frailty, anything that's heightened by forced uh, mass loss 
mm. could be something we look at. Uh, and of course, the new area that we're focusing on is potentially creatine as an anti-COVID therapy. You know, if you're locked down or you're forced to be inactive, could creatine help? Or what if there's another pandemic? Maybe this is something that you can at least have some strategies to help individuals if they're if they're forced to stay home or be inactive. So there's a lot of potential promise. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. And and you've mentioned a lot of the mechanisms where which creatine would be, you know, helpful in those different scenarios. The cachexia one, of course, that because that's a large sort of with cancer patients, that's one of the reasons that increases their uh, or decreases their survival rate, isn't it? Yeah, cancer, uh, HIV, AIDS, mm. any huge uh, uh, immune system response condition. Um, so all of these are areas that might have some promise. And, and if it has some potential, we got to look at all avenues for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And as you say, the safety profile is is pretty exciting. It's second to none. Yeah. yeah, yeah, awesome. Darren, thank you so much for your time this morning. I feel like we've covered like quite a lot. And, and as I said, I will put the papers that we refer to in the show notes. And of course, okay. if the... Uh, brain health review paper is out by the time this sort of airs I'll definitely put that out too where can people find you? Yeah probably the easiest is that Instagram that they, they, they directly message me or, uh, so my Instagram handle is at Dr. Darren Kando um, and that's probably the easiest where most people are on social media they can message me or, or I try to post a lot of our current uh, research with that as well and um, yeah it's uh, great talking to you and thanks for having me. Awesome thanks so much Darren. Okay thank you so much. All right, team, hopefully you enjoyed that. I loved having the opportunity to pick his brain, all of my questions on creatine. So hopefully you got something out of that as well. Next week, I have the pleasure of bringing to you my conversation with Melanie Wales, who I suspect most of you haven't heard of. And I came across Melanie on Instagram as a fellow Carbon Diet app user, and she shares over there her transformation story which has been many years in the making and I really wanted to chat to her about how she has used nutrition and exercise to transform not only her physical body but her emotional psychological and mental state as well and it was such a perfect conversation so hopefully you enjoy that until then though you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to those plans that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you can also book a one-on-one consult with me. All right, team, you have a great day and look forward to catching you next week. See you later.